Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we have real talk about fertility and show the incredible lengths people go to to create their families. Today, I'm here with my friend and friend of Pregnantish, best-selling self-help author, speaker, happiness guru, Karen Salmonson, who also happened to have a baby with her own eggs at 49.50. We will get into that. Today's episode is presented by us here at Pregnanish. This season, we're expanding on the success of our first study, Why I Left My Fertility Clinic, to hear from people who have stepped into a clinic in the last five years and hear their feedback, your feedback, on what that experience was like. Please share your voice today so that we together can help the patient of tomorrow. Visit pregnanish.com slash insights for more. For over 25 years, Karen Salmonson has been a multi-best-selling author with over 2 million books sold globally. Her first book, How to Be Happy, Damn It, was recommended on Oprah and many, many more outlets, getting her national attention and a slew of public fans, including Madonna, Tony Robbins, and Deepak Chopra. Her brand of self-help and happiness hacks are witty, accessible, and actionable. No toxic positivity here. Karen is now the mother to an almost 13-year-old boy, Ari, who was conceived via IVF with her own eggs at 50. Karen, we have so much to talk about, not just, of course, with fertility, it's the Pregnant Podcast, but happiness, toxic people, toxic positivity, all the things that are, are on our mind constantly at Pregnantish. I'm so happy you're here in the studio. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. You know, I would love to start with this self-help happiness space that you were early in. You know, now it's all over Instagram. We see a lot of gurus talking. And of course, you have a big brand socially. We know that you have a popular newsletter, everything else. But back in the early days, like how did you get into, and I'm a self-help author, but you preceded me. How did you get into this space? It's a zigzag, like a lot of my life. Okay. I started off in advertising. This is part of the story. And I learned how to be both a copywriter and a creative director and marketing and all of that because I worked at like some of the big New York agencies. So bigger is not necessarily better. Bigger is sometimes more annoying because there's like (laughs) more red tape and kind of like focus groups and all of that. But I learned how to art direct and creative direct. I became like a senior vice president creative director. And then I just was really unhappy because of all the politics and everything. So I kept threatening to quit to write books. And my parents kept talking me out of it. And they said, how can you quit if you're doing so well? And I said, well, ironically, that's how I can quit. Because if I was sucking, I'd be too afraid to quit. (laughs) But if I get whatever I'm doing to succeed at something that I don't really feel passionate about anymore. I can apply those traits to something I'm passionate about, which was books. So ultimately, I just quit and didn't tell my parents for a little bit. And then (laughs) I wrote my first book, which was actually a novel. But to zigzag, at that time, I was reading a lot 
of self-help books, but humiliated, embarrassed to be seen reading them. So I used to rip off the covers hmm. and read them in public or, you know, just even literally like hide them in, inside of another book cover, like have something from a sitcom, you know. And then the marketing brain in me thought, oh, you know what? There should be self-help for people who wouldn't be caught dead doing self-help. It didn't exist back then. So I came up with this idea for this book, How to Be Happy, Damn It, with the word damn it, a curse word in the title. Nobody was doing that back then either. And back then is when? What year was this? 1990s. Mm -hmm. So then I thought, oh, I want to art direct it. Like I had this vision like with these like colorful spreads and make it artistic and make it fun. Like I think a spoonful of eye candy helps the self-help medicine go down and add humor and feistiness and, you know, graphics. And I told my agent about this and she thought I was nuts. So she didn't even want to pursue it. So I parted ways with her amicably because I still liked her and I didn't blame her for not being able to have the same vision as me. And then I, because I was a creative director in advertising, I looked around for, and back then there wasn't like software that I could teach myself like Photoshop and InDesign, which was very complicated, but I knew how to be a creative director. So I found somebody that knew InDesign and Photoshop, and I worked out a deal with them to give them back end. And then I had the whole manuscript already done for How to Be Happy, Damn It. And I worked with them as the creative director, they being the designer. And we did the whole entire book from beginning to end because of my background as a creative director. And then we took that whole book because I figured I forgave my agent because she couldn't visualize it. And I figured if I just show it to publishing houses. This is what it looks like and take out some of the fear and, you know, just get them excited with a visually exciting product. So we did the whole book from beginning to end. And then I shopped it and we had a bidding war for it because it looked so different, but it took some of the fear out because there's like, oh, okay, this is what it looks like. And then How to Be Happy Damn It came out and it was huge bestseller. Back then, Urban Outfitters had a little table with books like this, but nothing like this, but they had some gifty books. And it was Urban Outfitters bestselling book for like two years in a row and just like went crazy big bestseller. It's amazing. I mean, I know as an author, that's just not easy at all. And actually today, just so people, if anyone's interested in writing a book, like the way it works generally, and Karen zigzagged all over outside the lines, which is what I love and appreciate about you. But to sell nonfiction in general, self-help, because I am in that category as well with my books, you usually sell a proposal. You don't sell a finished product. And that makes sense to an extent because the world is changing and you're reporting on trends. And whereas with fiction, you sell a polished, finished manuscript because that won't change. But the fact that you innovated so much, which is why people are both fascinated and scared by people like you. And even me, when we launched Pregnash, people told me that it was crazy. It's so niche and crazy to serve only an audience struggling or trying to conceive that's too narrow. And I was like, no, that's the power of it. But when you think outside the lines, it's hard to get people to pay attention until it's flying off the shelves. You become a bestseller and then everybody wants you, right? So what happened next? Well, and by the way, I mean, it was extra crazy because it was a self-help book with the word damn it, in the title. Like my agent was like, what are you even thinking? <laughs> you know, but then it did really well. 
And then I did a couple sequels, the Damn It series. And then I just started doing lots more of these, what I call self-help, that you wouldn't be caught dead doing self-help, or self-help that you could give to a friend as a gift, and they're not going to punch you because it looks really cool. It's not like you need a self-help book. It's just sort of like, my joke was I wanted to have every how to be happy, damn it, in every bathroom in the world, you know, like, is this like a good bathroom read, you know? And now, like a lot of people have curse words in their titles, you know, and damn it is like tame. But you were setting the tone for a new brand of self-help, which is awesome. So because you've written a lot about happiness, you shared some like happiness hacks or exercises or actionable things. What's something about happiness that others may not know or expect? Okay. Well, I have my go-tos that I believe, because I also coach people and stuff. And I feel like if somebody's really depressed, the first thing that I look for is they're always or they're never. And this, I think your pregnant-ish people might relate to this one. Like, this always happens to me. I will never bobbity-boop-bop, you know. And that's called permanent and pervasive thoughts. And so you have to get to the root of what your always or never is. You kind of dig around. And then you have to be like a tough attorney and like really show those always and nevers to be liars. Like, oh, really? Always? What about so-and-so? Didn't they get pregnant at blah, blah, blah? Or, or never? Oh, really? Never? What about, you know? So you have to kind of get rid of your always and nevers. And cross-examine your negative thoughts. Yes. Yeah. And then like another one is if you ask depressing questions, you're going to get depressing answers. Like, why me? Why can I never? Instead, like, well, what can I learn from this? What's something I can control in this? You know, to focus on the questions that lead to better answers. So I'm a big believer in what I call stop and swaps. Like, if you just tell yourself, like, you know, don't think that. Like, that's not, you need to replace, and you have to do a stop and swap. You have to not just stop a negative thought. You have to swap in. It's sort of like dog training. Like if your dog is constantly chewing on your slippers, you have to find something else for the dog to chew on because the dog has that urge to chew while your brain has the urge to chew on something. So you can't just like take away the slippers, take away the negative thought. You have to give it something else to chew on. Mm -hmm. So you chew on a positive thought. You chew on something else. Yeah, I love that. I think it's also, it's similar back in the day when I taught dating workshops in my earlier career as a dating author, relationship author, I used to post perspectives. This is what it reminds me of, Karen, perspectives around the room for singles saying dating sucks or I'm exhausted. And then I put some positive perspectives like, you know, even a bad date makes a good story or I'm learning a lot, you know, whatever it is. And I would ask people to swap, to stand under a negative sign, tell me what their feelings are about that, but then to switch and find a positive sign and defend that side, but also authentically, not in a fake way. Like, why is dating sometimes funny, even when it's awful? And I'd challenge them to challenge themselves to answer that. And I think that's exactly in line with your stop and swap with thoughts, with perceptions, with perspectives, because I've always believed, you know, in life, we settle on a perspective and collect evidence to support it. So your thought about always or never, your thought about 
this advice is so helpful for those of us struggling. And as you said, our audience at Pregnish, obviously, and not everyone who listens to podcasts is struggling. I should make that clear with infertility because we do cover wonderful thought leaders on the podcast who speak about a lot more. But for the people navigating deep grief, how can we let in, in your opinion, that grief, the depth of emotion, the depth of sadness, but not get carried away or sucked too far into it? Well, I actually believe that you have to let yourself feel the pain to heal the pain. Like you have to really feel the core pain truth of it. So I am a big believer in journaling and just to get it out, get it out onto the page and to let yourself sort of like feel it all and just releasing it can be very healing you know, to really see the truth of it. Yes. For me, journaling was always very helpful. Um, We had on the podcast, my friend Rebecca, who's a grief author, and she was sharing, you know, for some people who aren't maybe into journaling, there's other ways to channel it. What are some others that you've heard of, Karen, to channel grief and find hopefully your way to balance with also inviting in positive thoughts? Well, I also think turning your pain into purpose, like the way that you did, you know, where you find a way to help others that are struggling with something that you're dealing with gets you to get outside of yourself a little bit. And any kind of art is very cathartic, dance, music, drawing, anything where you feel the, you turn it into something else. You channel it into something more beautiful, like doing a, you know, just paintings or drawings or something like that, I think can be very helpful. And talking to somebody that you trust, you know, that you really feel heard and understood. Well, on that note, Karen, of course, you remember we taught a workshop online about toxic people, a workshop where we made the distinctions. Some toxic relationships are relationships we don't choose, like with family or coworkers, but some relationships that are toxic are ones we've invited in somehow with dates or with friends, et cetera. So let's talk about that, because I think in this world of grief and infertility and pregnancy loss and a lot of, again, our audience at Pregnant struggling with these things, there are toxic people around. How do we create boundaries with the relationships we can't choose and the relationships we can choose, according to, you know, all the work you've done in this? Well, definitely. I know sometimes it's scary to think about having an open, honest conversation with somebody who is a toxic person because you think it's just going to escalate, you know, and there's a lot of truth to that. So what you have to do is find a way to communicate and cut down the odds of things escalating. So one way that I suggest people do this is to do what I call compliment sandwich, right? Where you start off and you say to the person, you know, something really good about them up front. You know, like, I can tell that you really care about me. You want the best from me. Because sometimes these people really do. They do. You know, they're just not going about it in an empathic way or you know, an awake way. So you let them know that you you notice that and you and then you say, you know what, I really want us to have the best relationship and that there's truth there. That's what you want and they want that. So you're both now feeling good and you say so, and then you even admit, this is like a little bit difficult to talk about because I really value our relationship, but I have to bring this up. 
Okay, so you do that little, it's almost like foreplay, you know, <laughs> right? And then you bring up what's on your mind and you try to not be accusatory. You bring it as many I senses, I feel, I know, I feel. And then you pause and then you say, you know, what you want, like what the answer would be. I'd really prefer if you bobbity boop bob. I guess a stop and swap, you yeah, know, totally. you give them their stop and swap and then you ask them. So you're not telling them, you say, how do you feel about what I'm saying? Do you kind of see where I'm coming from? Like, so you soften it. So it lessens the probability for escalation. That's really smart. I think so much of good relationships are built on acknowledgement. I see you, you see me. I respect you. We both have that. And that's setting the tone for that kind of productive listening because someone's not going to listen if you out of the gate get too defensive or mad at a question that may be triggering, for instance. And listen, we're all human. We've all had moments where, and we share this a lot on Pregnantish, like when you want to slap someone who gives you advice, we get it here. And we are told so often, you know what you, you just have to do? Think positively. Yeah. If I have no sperm, that's really not going to help me. Right. So there is, though, a way to invite someone to have a healthier way to support you, a more helpful way to support you. And it benefits both of you because then, listen, no one wants to be in a relationship where they're bringing you down. Well, I guess there are some super toxic people who thrive on that, but those are people with personality disorders. And that's another podcast. I think. Definitely. Oh, I, now I forgot that because it's a compliment sandwich, you have to end it with a compliment too. Like, you know, I really appreciate your trying to work this out with me. You know, like I can see you really care. Like, so you kind of put the other slice of compliment bread on the other side of the beef that you're having with them, you know? Oh yeah. That's really, really good. What generally when you're working with clients as a coach or listening to your readers or the community you've built up through, not Salmon, right? That's your platform. Generally, what are people feeling or asking for your help navigating these days? Like social media, has it brought us closer? Is it creating more issues? What are you seeing? These days, I actually help people with their social media. I don't know if that's exactly the answer, but I think that social media has some really positive things in it because it is attracting communities. And because I do self-help and positive thinking, I attract people that are kind of growth mindset minded. Yes. yes. And then those people in the posts are very supportive of everybody else in the post. Like I see they even interact with each other, which is really great. But something also happens, which is you feel like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Like even when I write a topic that's something near to dear to my heart or something that I've learned a tough lesson over and I post about it and I see all these people going, me too, me too, mm-hmm. me too. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh my God, it's not just me. I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And that I think social media is, is really- Oh, it's great yeah. for that. That's so true. We do our Talk Back Tuesday at Pregnantish exactly for that reason, to say you're not a weirdo if you're struggling with this. It's almost like a confessional at times where it's anonymous and people share deeply, but so many people are saying amen <laughs> as they're reading it. Yes. And you know, when I help people with their social media who have, I mean, 
mean, I know this is a little off topic, but it's kind of what I do because of being in advertising marketing. I sometimes tell them to think backwards and to think, would somebody write Me Too? Would somebody write Amen? Would somebody write, like, think, look at it, because then you'll know if you're really connecting with somebody. If somebody is like, oh my God, it's as if you're like reading my mind, or I was just talking about this the other day. So those are to know that that's sort of you're in the right territory of posting if you think it would get that kind of a response. Yes, definitely good yardstick for how to engage more authentically. I think also sometimes a social media, I'm a huge fan of social media for the reasons you share. Sometimes a social media break, especially around triggering holidays, moments where it might be better to take a walk outside than to be tied to your screen scrolling is a good thing. And just being on a bit of a diet occasionally <laughs> to cut back. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. So that's all important. So our audience is definitely wondering, and I said this to you, Karen, when we stepped in here, we don't have to go deeply into your fertility journey, but you have this miracle boy who's awesome named Ari, who's almost 13. He's sometimes on your social media, but in a way he's like a miracle kid because when you underwent IVF, that was a much different era. This was almost 13 years ago. And so what was that like? Well, I'm a very determined person, the same way I was with my How to Be Happy Damn It book, figuring out, you know, how do I get that book to be born? Well, how do I have a baby to be born? So I found a lot of doctors that I felt were just like generic thinkers, you know, like just saying the same old, same old. And then I went to a doctor called Dr. Sammy David, and he was an innovative thinker, which is my kind of a thinker. And I had miscarried earlier, and I told him about the miscarriage and how the doctor, who was very smart, but a generic version of smart, like just like following the book, you know, told me to stop taking progesterone after the baby's heartbeat and never wanted me to take estrogen, even though I was low on estrogen in my tests. And Dr. David said, you know what? You should keep taking the progesterone after the heartbeat. And I see nothing wrong with estrogen supplementation as long as you don't overdo it. Also, statistically, the fact that you conceived with your own eggs at that age is, I was saying, I'm not exaggerating, is a very unusual and incredible. So I wouldn't say like all of us could repeat that at 49, but in terms of you monitoring your hormones, how did you do that? So when I became pregnant under his auspices, I just kept taking the progesterone and he gave me these little tiny estrogen pills and I would just kind of like nibble on the outside of them just so I wouldn't take too much. And then I became sort of like the human pincushion. And I kept going into a lab quest and just getting my blood taken like probably every other day and just to monitor. So I didn't overdo it, particularly the estrogen. He made me aware that I shouldn't overdo that one. And then I just made sure my levels never went down. You are so proactive. I mean, today with at-home hormone testing, it's even a different landscape. People are checking more with doctor's counsel, like you're saying, of course, a doctor they trust. But I still think it's amazing that when you were in your late 40s, doctors were open to working with you 
with your own eggs, because that is not common today because of SART scores and other things that some doctors don't want to touch because they, they know statistically someone who's 48, 49 may, you know, not be able to use her own eggs. Dr. David was very positive and forward thinking. It's still kind of record breaking, but amazing and inspiring. I did go to him back in the day and had a really appreciated it. I remember one story where I was on the table being examined. He wanted to do a test after my husband and I were intimate. I came in X number of hours later the next day for him to look at my bodily fluids under a microscope to see the sperm. And there was nothing in me. And he said, are you sure you hooked up? And I was like, this is super awkward, but we have these conversations in the fertility world. Yes, I'm sure. And he said, well, you may be allergic to your husband's sperm or there may be something else going on. So let's test it. That as a content creator who was at that time writing for Cosmo and Glamour, I thought that's my next article. I'm allergic to my husband, who is a wonderful man. Michael's awesome. But then what a weird thing to be told. I had a lot more issues than that. We turned out with my uterus, but he was definitely outside the box, which I appreciated. And in my many doctors and many years of seeing doctors. Yeah. You know, it's amazing because everything you were doing both as an ad exec, as a self-help author, as an early-ish IVF mom, (laughs) were like really at that time, not as common as today. So you're just a trendsetter all around. What do you think is next for you in terms of your work, your focus, your passion? Well, there's a couple of things I'm thinking of. I actually, speaking about toxic positivity, I actually believe that you need to be unhappy in order to be happy. And I think I want to write more about that. That's something because if you run away from your feelings, and I think we live in a world that's so busy all the time that we don't sit with our feelings. So that is something that has been kind of tickling my brain to write about that topic, which is a little bit of what you were asking me about. I also want to do more with aging. I did write a longevity book called Life is Long about like, you know, slowing down the aging process and, you know, getting more energy and clarity of mind. So a lot of stuff in there about that, but also about your perspective as you age, like I'm not done yet, you know, and I keep planning to reinvent myself and And how old are you now? I'm going to be 63 in August. I mean, the audience can't see you, but people will be shocked if they see you and that you're, you make any age look good, but 63, really good. Thank you. Well, and so I want to write more about that. And I think people, when you get to be, listen to me now, I sound so, when you get to be my age, you know, I feel like (laughs) I feel silly saying that. But people are thinking about their legacies and how they want to be remembered. And that's something that I've been thinking about doing more on too. And, you know, I'm not done yet. I have a lot of topics that I want to write about, you know, and speak about and do courses about and, you know, books and all of that. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, I just think you bring so much light and clarity in in such an accessible way, which is part of your power in this world. And thank you so much for being on the Pregnish Podcast. Oh, I love everything you're doing. And you're so inspiring and adorable. And your daughter is so incredibly charismatic and smart and funny and obviously gorgeous, you know, like <laughs> she's you. the whole package. Oh, well, Ari and Ariel will have to get together. Yes. <laughs> the two Aries. Thank you again. 
And thank you for listening to another inspiring episode of Pregnantish, where we always have real talk about the range of emotions we feel and about fertility. Until next time.